Embark on a journey with us where resilience meets opportunity. This is The Dirt Road to Success. Hi, I'm Skip Colvin, host for Dirt Road to Success. So what is Dirt Road to Success? Dirt Road to Success is a new book that's coming out next year that I'll be uh, getting published. And we have a podcast that's really dedicated to discussing faith, family, and work uh, topics. So what does that mean, Dirt Road to Success? Well, everybody that, that is successful looks back over their career or their uh, situation and they see opportunities that they've had to go through potholes and go down dirt roads and twist and turns to get to where they are. Uh, most people see successful people and they think, oh, well, they've been on a paved road their entire life, but that's not really uh, reality. That's not really what happens. Uh, hard work, dedication, planning, and focused and endurance uh, is the journey to success. Success is measured in a lot of different things, not necessarily financial, but it could be project-driven, it could be relationship-driven, it could be opportunity or positional-driven. So we're going to talk a little bit today with Scott Wingeter. We're going to talk with him a little bit today. Scott is a veteran. Uh, thank you. I appreciate your service very much. My pleasure. Uh, went into the Air Force at 18 years old, if I understand correctly. Uh, spent some time in Intel, worked for the NSA, nice little career there for about eight years, got out, got your degree, became a history professor, ran a school. But in reality, you're a constitutionalist. Yes. You love history. You love understanding and talking about the Constitution, basically the path of our government, why it was created, how it was created, who formed it, and really some interesting topics that you and I've had that I want to bring out today, sure. specifically around the Constitution, the amendments, some freedoms that we'll get into uh, in a later episode. But, but if I were to just kind of open this up, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us what you're doing today. How can we find you? What projects are you working on? And uh, we'll get into some Q&A around the Constitution. Sure. Thanks for having me, first of all, Skip. I appreciate it. Um, so I am currently still, I'm still with uh, Paideia Classical School uh, as a history teacher there. Uh, I'm headmaster emeritus, if you will. Mm. Uh, uh, so I've, I've stepped down from the position of running the school and I've handed that over to my wife. Uh, so that I can now focus on some other projects that uh, I'm working on. Uh, <clears throat> my best friend um, started a film production company called Sixpence Productions. It's located here in Magnolia uh, in Montgomery County. And what we're working on is uh, we're trying to basically win back the culture, right? Uh, because that's such an important thing. Uh, as you said, I'm a constitutional conservative, right? Uh, and I, and I, when I look at the situation that we find ourselves in, we call ourselves conservative, but yet we've, you know, ceded every single major aspect of culture in America to the left. Uh, we've ceded K through 12 education. We've ceded the universities and the academies. We've ceded the media, uh, art. We've ceded over you know film and cinema and tv shows and, and and so like basically all culture it makes you wonder we call ourselves conservative what are we conserving um and so that's why i've i've signed on with uh sixpence productions and and why we're fighting the good fight so hard is because we really need to have uh our, our conservative voices in film 
Um, so we're working on a, uh, a project right now. We actually just went public with it. It's called In the Shadow of High Places. You can check it out at highplacesshow.com. Highplacesshow.com? Okay. Correct. Yep, and it's basically it's a, it's a TV show that um, takes on the it, it questions about life and death and the you know relationship between the two, and, and in particular, it uh, takes on the issue of abortion. Mm. Um, wow. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty uh, volatile, what I would say, conversation. You know, it's interesting you bring this up, and we'll get back. I want to get back to Six Pence in just a minute. Sure. I just got back from D.C., and I went to the National Association of Christian Lawmakers Organization. Mm-hmm. Senator Jason Rapert from Arkansas created that and founded that organization specifically to bring Christian lawmakers together mm-hmm. from all states and all walks, not Republican, not necessarily Democrat, but just legislatures, lawmakers that can work together and create legislation that works for all states. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a really fantastic organization. I really highly encourage people to go out and check out the things that NACL is working on and that abortion topic is one of their top priorities. Absolutely. And, and of course, obviously freedoms and, and things that go along with sure. that. But, but that is definitely one topic. But for Sixpence, let's back up and unpack that just a little bit. For Sixpence, it sounds like you've taken on a huge monumental project right off the bat. Very controversial. Obviously, it's divided right down the middle. And so tell me, tell me what's driving that. <laughs> well, uh, let me just be frank about that. Um, we originally weren't planning on touching this uh, for some time. Um, we have a bunch of projects that we could, could have picked uh, to, to really focus our efforts on. Um, we do have another show that we were working on, um, that's kind of in a holding pattern right now due to some other stuff. Um, but originally we weren't planning on doing this because it's such a controversial topic. You know, you don't want to just walk into, you know, a room guns blazing, right? Yeah. Onto it's the like scene. walking into a buzzsaw. Right. right. Yeah. So <clears throat> that was not our, uh, that was not our logical intent. But as we prayed about it uh, and, and, you know, sought guidance from the Lord on, on what to do, we just felt like this is exactly what we were supposed to do. This, this was the time to do that. And so that's what we're, uh, we're currently pursuing. So, so let's, let's, I want to back up a little bit and let's create a context. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your uh, position at the school. So as headmaster... I'm assuming, and the name of the school was? Paideia Classical School. I'm assuming that's a biblical worldview school. Yes, sir. Okay, so so your context or your view on this topic is coming from a biblical worldview. You feel like it's obviously something that needs to be focused on. Sure. Talk a little bit about the show and what is it going to highlight? Is it documentary? Is it situational awareness? Is it communication? Tell me, tell me kind of the overview. And I don't want you to spoil it. Sure. But, but just give me the overview. So it's a supernatural thriller. Um, it's, it's fiction, you know, um, it's, you have basically four different stories that are interwoven together. Um, it, it focuses on two sisters, 
uh, one's kind of, um, you know, was the family's golden girl and, uh, you know, she did everything right and everything like that. And the other one sort of was a, a rebel and has moved away. So she, she grew up the, the first sister, you know, that she's a pathologist. She works in a lab. She has a family. She's close to her parents. Uh, she grew up in the Christian home and all that stuff goes to church, you know, the other sister is basically working for she's working for a an organization that's not planned parenthood you know mm. uh we we can't use planned parenthood not without planned getting parenthood, sued right? right but yeah it it's a it's an organization that's loosely based off of you know the real life planned parenthood um and so she is basically about to she's in a place where she could take over that organization um also, you have um, a group of reporters, uh, undercover journalists, that are looking to break a story uh, and are investigating this pl not Planned Parenthood organization. So, like OMG? Uh, basically, yeah. Um, so, this is all based so, off... So, there, for those that don't know, James O'Keefe mm -hmm. um, <coughs> left his other organization, which right. we won't give any airtime to. And created OMG, mm -hmm. and they have the embedded uh, whistleblowers, if you will, or embedded journalists doing what you're describing in this show. Right. Okay. And then you have uh, the her father, the the daughter's, the two girls' father. Uh, he was in Vietnam, mm. uh, and so we have flashbacks to Vietnam and dealing with life and death through mm -hmm. that as well. Um, and it, it so I, I think I could say this. So the guy that's going to be playing Jack, that's the character, uh, that's the father Dad. is, okay. is Kevin Sorbo. Nice. And nice. we have, uh, his son, um, that is going to be, uh, playing the young Jack. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and his name is Braden. You know, what's interesting. I mean, uh, obviously, we're, we're going to talk about the Constitution today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this show called Dirt Road to Success mm -hmm. is, is really kind of a platform to talk about, you know, where we start, the journey we go on to get to where we need to be. And, and listening to you talk about Sixpence and your passion and really your obedience, mm -hmm. I would say, to what God has called you to do is that, hey, we were going this direction. But God instilled in us, we need, to, we need to cover this topic. Right. So I say that to say your path, your dirt road, is, is about obedience. And you're obviously the, the person that is obedient to God doesn't go through the easy street. Right. There is a lot of difficulty sometimes in going through that path. And it sounds like to me you've gone from a military intelligence Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get into that in this show. I want to bring you back and talk about your time at the NSA. Sure. You go from military intelligence, NSA, to teaching the Constitution, mm -hmm. to teaching history, to running a school with a biblical worldview, to now developing a platform where you can highlight and develop a narrative that's specific to life. Right. So it's always been about serving, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I tell my students this all the time. 
it doesn't matter what you do, right? Whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a banker or a teacher or a garbage man, none of like what you do doesn't matter. You're always going to be serving other people in whatever it is that you're going to be doing. Right. Um, and service above self. Right. Exactly. And so I've always looked at it like that. It's like, okay, I'm going to end up being a servant some way, shape or form. Right. So what, what can I do that will have the most impact on, you know, my community on, you know, the people that I love, uh, that, you know, my state, my nation, you know, and it can mm-hmm. get bigger from there. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, and so that's what I've always tried to embrace and do is, you know, look at the situation and say, okay, how can I make the biggest impact for the greatest amount of good with w- the resources that God has given me? You know, you're saying that's God and, uh, <clears throat> that that's the whole purpose of my podcast. Mm-hmm is I want to be able to share opportunities where people can get information to do the very best that they can. I want to serve the people that watch. I want to serve my viewers. I want to give them enough information to not make the mistakes that I made or others have made Mm -hmm. and help them create a pathway that is less full of potholes, that may be slightly more paved than the dirt road. Any, Any journey we go on, whether it be in your career whether it be in growing in your faith, whether it be living in your family and, and trying to navigate those situations, um, always, always has potholes. Right. Okay. But, but and, and talking with the Constitution and that subject, really, as a nation, we're on a dirt road. Yeah. You go back to the beginning of our nation, the founding fathers, even predating the founding fathers, mm-hmm. the whole idea of this country, this nation, this group of states was founded on the dirt road that we want a different path. Mm -hmm. We want to get out from under the tyranny. We want to get out from under the uh, taxation. We want to get out from under the thumb of a dictatorship or whatever you want to, feudalism, if you want to call it that. We want to get out from under that and we want to create a new life for ourselves and our family. We have a vision of the, what that success looks like. And then you think about where the Constitution was started, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. When we sign that document, those founding fathers, in some instances, signed their own death warrant. Mm-hmm. No different in some instances as you're going back to the 12 disciples committing to follow Christ. Right. They signed their own death warrant. And so fast forward and you look at the dirt road of what this country has gone down to get to where we are today. And to be honest with you, I believe we've gone back from ground zero again because we have the precipitous of what we're dealing with today in politics and in how the government and the justice system is following the Constitution. In some theories, we might be back at ground zero because we have a, a, and I don't want to use the word corruption, but we have a manipulation, as you will, or a misunderstanding of what the founding fathers really focused on. And you and I's previous conversation really helped me open up and think about what am I doing to really preserve and protect the country? Mm -hmm. What am I doing as a normal everyday worker person, citizen of this great state of Texas and the United States? What am I doing to preserve 
not conserve, but preserve mm-hmm. the rights of citizens, the rights of of what the Constitution stands for and the founding fathers and what they intended? And the answer is not much. So, hence, we're having this conversation because what I would like to do is build upon the foundation of what the Constitution is and what the Constitution is not and really what the Founding Fathers' intent was, I do believe, as a normal citizen, that is a living, breathing document that is concreted what this country should stand for. Mm. But I do believe over time, things have happened that have gotten us away from our focus. In any journey, whether you're going from here to California and you punch in navigation, you have a plan. There's a path laid out ahead of you. The same thing applies to getting a college degree or getting a master's degree Mm -hmm. or getting a new job or developing a new business. All of those things require some plan, some written, some mental, but they require some plan. And I believe that this nation may be off of our plan. I would say that we are definitely in a post-constitutional America. Mm. We are not following the, the the Constitution is a contract. So talk to me like I'm a, a 10th grader, civics class 101. You know, you're the professor, you're coming in, it's first day of class. Uh, what's the purpose of the Constitution? So in order to answer that question, I think we have to go back to the Declaration first. Um, the way I would look at it is... And that's the Declaration of Independence. Yes, the Declaration of Independence. So you're talking, you know, 13 years apart, Mm -hmm. um, but it's important to understand that I think what I've focused my study on history in in particular on is, you know, history is sort of this really big, broad topic, right? So you have subtopics that are underneath there. Uh, Intellectual history, which is the history of ideas, um, legal history, so the history of law, um, p- and political philosophy in particular, and where those three really cohesively meet is this era that we're talking about. The uh, Declaration the of Independence. Declaration of Independence into the, the early Federalist era. And right? so, so thinking of the Declaration of Independence, why was that document written and signed? So it starts... Uh, you have to understand that I really think that when you look at this is a 2,500 year evolving process when you, when you study intellectual history, which is why I brought that up. All right. So when you look at the ideas that go into this document, you have to go all the way back to like ancient Athens uh, to get all of them. Right. (coughs) Excuse me. Recovering from a cold. You, you need something else to drink? Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Let me just That's try that again. That's great thing about editing. All right. So you have to go back to ancient Athens to really see where all of these ideas come from. Um, that being said, I think that when you look at intellectual history as a whole and, and with a focus on political theory, I really do believe that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution um, 
those are the crown jewels of all human political thought in all of human history. And so uh, the Declaration is the talk and the Constitution is the walk. So really, to answer your specific question, I would point rather to the Declaration of Independence as opposed to the Constitution. You know, it starts off, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary, blah, 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 blah. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that in order to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So there it is, the from sentence right the there. From the consent of the governed <clears throat> is that a key To phrase. secure the rights, mm-hmm. right? Governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. You, you could reread it like that, right? Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of government. If a government is not protecting the individual's natural rights, then it is no longer a legitimate government. It is an illegitimate government. Um, and so you look at an example like North Korea. Like, I don't have freedom of speech in North Korea. Uh, if I'm walking around Pyongyang and I say Kim Jong Il's a fat sob, they're gonna grab me and put a bullet in the back of my head for saying that. Um, however, they're the ones that are violating my natural rights by doing so. I'm allowed to say whatever I want to say, um, and um, you know their job if they were a legitimate government is to protect the natural rights of their people, which clearly they do not. And that's not, that's one of many countries. Sure. Uh, in fact, uh, it's just the opposite. It's actually uh, how many countries actually support free speech. Right. Well, I, I picked probably North Korea because it's probably the most egregious, uh, quote government out there. Uh, but yeah, there's plenty of government examples where <clears throat> even in, Places like Canada, you know, which we would think tend to be, mo- you know, a Western style, quote, modern democracy. Uh, they're our friends to the north. They're, you know, th- look at how they treated their people during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, the truckers. Mm-hmm. The truckers uh, arresting pastors for holding church. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not okay either. Uh, Canada is not protecting the natural rights of their people. And, you know, so when you think about the Declaration of Independence, it's the independence of what? Because I'm, I'm trying to set the tone of maybe the person who doesn't understand mm-hmm. the civics class. So it's the independence of what? Well, I mean, classically, everyone would say, right, you know, you ask your average Texan eighth grader, they'd say, oh, we're getting independence from Great Britain. No, you're missing the point. It's an independency of the individual. Right. That is what we're focusing on. Um, it's very it's very important to understand that there are eight you know, billion people on planet Earth. Right. Um, but by focusing on the individual person. You cast the widest net because that's what makes us equal. That's the equality that we're talking about in that, that second sentence of the declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We have the same equal natural rights given to us by God. You have a right to life. You have a right to, uh, you know, liberty, 
safety, security, happiness, when you look at some of the other state constitutions that come out of the Revolutionary War, the, you know, in the 1770s and 80s, you know, there's a whole litany of, of these natural rights that they spell out that are much more, um, you know, spelled out than the three that we see in the Declaration of Independence. When you see the signers or framers of the Declaration of Independence mm-hmm. and the Constitution, those framers, those men that took a stand yes, um, against tyranny or against whatever you want to call it, right? They took a stand. Sure. W- what kind of threat were they under pre-signing and post-signing? It was very clear after the first Continental Congress, which does not get a lot of attention. Uh, every and years were thi- what years were this? That was, it would have been 1774. Okay. Um, just and- a couple, just... Really, just a few years before. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they sent what was referred to as the Olive Branch Petition to George III, uh, saying, hey, you're not paying attention to our natural rights, uh, so we're going to not do any trade with, with England until you uh, restore us to our natural uh, state. Um you know, we're, we're, we're not going to pay taxes because we don't have representation in Parliament. And, you know, they, so they sent off this olive branch petition saying, hey, you know, work with us here and, uh, you know, we can avoid all this unpleasantness. His response was uh, sent in October of 1775. Um, it was basically saying, I will hang every one of you unless you stop this. Mm. You don't have this ability to even bring together this so-called Congress. Um, disperse, or I will hang you if you persist, is literally was his response. That's kind of, uh, it's kind of pompous and arrogant coming <laughs> across the pond. Well, that was traditionally the way that things were handled. Um, you know, Hang you and get it over. No due process. Just hang you and get it well, over. Well, if with. you're in open rebellion, you know, no, we're not going to tolerate that. It sort of gives you a carte blanche to put down that rebellion. Uh, that's traditionally how things have have worked in England. Um, sometimes for the you know betterment of the king. Sometimes not for the betterment of the king. Uh, if you want to see King Charles the uh, first in the English Civil War, they the Parliament caught the king and chopped his head off for treason. So, you know, treason's one of those subjective things. Uh, who's committing treason? Well, it depends on who's, of, you know, in the end in charge, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was basically it. The king was saying, you guys are committing treason, and if I catch you and you persist, I will hang you. So under his philosophy of their <clears throat> committing treason, is he had ownership of the North American continent? Right. Well, I mean, so they are subject to him. Mm-hmm. And that's the important for us to understand, right? Is what what's the difference between a citizen and a subject? A subject is are you ready for this? Subject to the king. Mm-hmm. Whereas a citizen is not subject to anyone. The citizen himself has sovereignty, which is independence for the individual. Yes. Develop the constitution. Mhm. So that we have a framework to right. move forward, independent and separate and apart from England. Yes. Uh, so 
America, it says in the first sentence, uh, when in the course of human events becomes necessary for one people, uh, and that's an important phrase, one mm-hmm. people, we could spend a whole hour on just that one word, mm-hmm. um, but for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected to another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them. Right. So entitled him. Right. It is an entitlement that God has set up this system. So God has set up this system of natural law, which we can get into uh, in a second here. And what he's saying is there's also there's a hierarchy of law. Let's start there. Right. At the very top of the totem pole, you have natural law. That is God's law. Then that is universal in nature. So, so what you're saying is the framers are dispelling the myth that we're not a Christian nation. God is mentioned several times throughout the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, you, interestingly enough, you'll see God uh, three times in particular that I'd like to mention. Uh, he's the legislator. Uh, because he's the one that is the author of natural law. He's the executive because he is the one that enforces this natural law. And he's also the judicial branch because he is, quote, the supreme judge. Mm. So you see the three branches of government spelled out in the Declaration of Independence, and it says that God has each one of those branches also under his control. I I find it interesting that you're saying that. And I think about um, just a few weeks ago when I was at that meeting in D.C., mm-hmm. Speaker Johnson came and he talked about his faith and how his faith, uh, obviously over the legislative right. branch, but how his faith drives his decision making and how they now have a prayer room where they can can focus on the mm-hmm. biblical worldview of how the legislation legislation needs to be developed. Sure. And so you mentioned that, and I'm that, that's why I kind of wanted to bring the light to that. Sure. Because, you know, you do have one aspect of the nation that believes we're not a Christian nation. Sure. That we're not a, uh, a nation of, of Christian-based constitution. But, but you just talking through those three different branches of government and saying how that they're driven by biblical worldview. Yes. I would say the—so here's how I would address that, and we're going to— we're going to get into that here in a second is God passes these laws and that's what makes natural law, right? So you have a right to life. Uh, another aspect that we have to pay attention to that I think we have lost in our modern sense is if you have a right to life, I have a duty an obligation that's placed upon me to respect that. So in other words, you have a right to life, I have an obligation not to murder you, okay? So there's, you know, the flip side of the coin is I have to pay attention to and respect your natural rights, even if I don't like you, even if I wanted to get rid of you, Skip. Uh, I can't stand that guy, you know? I cannot murder you just because I don't like you. You know, I think about, and up to this point, up to the Constitution, the bravery and the, um, in in some respects, solitude. They're, you know, they're they're on an island, mm-hmm. so to speak, um, making these decisions, knowing full well 
that there is a nation that would want to kill them to keep them from making it. And that path that they've gone through, that dirt road, mm-hmm. has got to be stressful. It's got to be one that is um, just weighs on the hearts and the minds of these men that are making these decisions. I'm, I'm trying to go back, and I love history, and I love understanding what were they thinking and seeing back then. And it was like, I'm going to do this or die trying. Well, there was but one thought on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, I'm quoting Jefferson here from mm-hmm. a letter. I think he wrote that in 1820. Uh, don't quote me on that. But he was basically talking about, it was a letter to Richard Henry Lee, who was the original author of the resolution for independence, mm-hmm. uh, You know, where it says, resolved that these uh, states are uh, independent, uh, you know, it's it's in the declaration there that that fu- that resolution that was from Richard Henry Lee, but Jefferson talks about how basically everybody in America at the time understood this concept of natural law, and so I'd like to get into that real quick. So so let me back up. So I'm thinking in my mind these guys are on a island by themselves, but that's not the case. Everyone that was here right kind of had the same concept. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's 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 great. And that's, you can I mean, see that based upon the writings of the various state constitutions mm-hmm. that start to come out in the 1770s and 80s. So so at that time there was unity right on moving forward sure as a nation. Yes, and that's an important word to use there. Mm-hmm. What it, how do we define nation? Is nation synonymous with country or government or it's not? Nation refers specifically to the people. So remember when I said, when in the course of human events mm-hmm. it becomes necessary for one people? Well, what does that mean? How are you one people? Well, everybody in America at the time spoke English or English. Uh, it, the common law was a system in place in ev- all 13 states at the time. Um, they were Largely, the vast majority of them were Protestant Christians, um, you know, and so you had this unique culture that everyone, even if you were from Massachusetts and you took somebody from Georgia, you know, the extreme ends, they could get along. They could speak to one another, understand one another. Uh, they had the same basic cultural heritage as one another. That's an important ingredient when you're trying to do all this that I think we take for granted. Uh, And, you know, you look at a place like the Islamic world, you know, they speak Arabic in Morocco and they speak Arabic in Iraq. But you cannot take somebody from Morocco and somebody from Iraq and sit them down and, you know, give them a coffee and have them have a conversation. They can't understand one another. But somebody from Georgia and somebody from Massachusetts in 1776 could. So the dialect is much more diverse mm-hmm. among that language than it is in the English language. Right. So there was this like commonality. Like I can understand someone from New York and I can understand someone from New Orleans. Sure. Even though I've got my southern twang. Right. I can go between them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that's an important thing because okay. that is how ideas are spread, right? is through language. And so common nouns, right? If we understand 
Yeah, we might have some different common nouns, like, you know, I don't know, think about, like, what you call, is it soda? Is it pop? Is it cola? Is it Coke? You know? It's all whatever. Coke. Right? <laughs> there, it depends on yeah. where you are. But right. even if you are from Pennsylvania, like I am, and I grew up calling it pop, and I come down here, and you all call it Coke, well, I can catch on pretty quick on what you're, what it is that you're talking about. So mm-hmm. that's an important ingredient is this one idea of one people, this nationhood, right? And, and really, when you think about that, and I've mentioned this in another episode about these guardrails on either side of the dirt road. So really, the guardrails were we were unified in what our objective was. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not where we are today. No. So when I go back and I'm thinking about th- these this people, this group that is trying to become a nation mm-hmm. is unified in their effort to move forward, develop their independence as a as a person, as a nation, and separate and apart from the UK or the king, UK, right. England. And then also, there's this other part, got along. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. For the most part. Not to scare anybody. And you know, I really, when I look at our modern day America as a, through that historical lens, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that the United States of America today has not been as divided as it is. Uh, you'd have to go back to, say, the 1850s and, the you know. The time of the Civil War. Right, is the right time before I, yeah. the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the things that we're going to be getting into today, right? It's a lack of understanding of history, a lack of understanding of these uh, political, I would argue, truths. Um, we don't have a virtuous people anymore. We don't teach virtue in our schools anymore. Um, and, you know, the writings of the founders and framers both, you know, I can sit here all day long and quote these guys. Um, it says that basically you cannot have a republic without a virtuous people. That and, this and republic was made for a virtuous people. And if we've lost that, then we will lose our republic. Moral compass. It's that simple. We've lost our republic. It, it, whether or not we have or will that that is debatable but yes that is the end result regardless whether that's we've already lost it or whether that's coming down the pike still it's kind of irrelevant unless we get our unless we start teaching virtue once again to our populace um and creating that one people once again let's talk about that teaching piece because in one of the other episodes, we talked about education and mm-hmm. just kind of where that where that situation is. <clears throat> we do have another episode coming up on education. Sure. So let's let's talk about that. When I when I was growing up, and I I don't like to say when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but but when I was growing up, one of the things well, there's two things we did every day. First thing was pledge allegiance. Second thing was either a prayer time or a silent time that you could do what you needed to do. I don't know today if that's still happening, but as I understand it, that is not happening. There is more defiance against saying the pledge or singing the national anthem. And I don't even want to get into 
the kneeling stuff mm-hmm. because then I'll get my face <laughs> will turn red and I'll probably have some veins popping out of my forehead. But right. but the reality of this lack of patriotism for our country, who undoubtedly is the greatest country in the world, or we would not have millions of people trying to pour over our border. Right. Yeah. Right. So so the the reality that we are a nation that has lost its way of patriotism. When I think about other countries, and I'm not some major historian or some philosophical politician, that's not what I do, but just from what I've seen and observed, there are countries that have great patriotism outside of America. Sure. And those countries seem to have more of a unified people. Yes. I'm going to use that word. Sure. We have lost that unification because we have, in my opinion, and it's, you know, you know what everybody says about opinions, but I believe we have lost the patriotism because we've lost the unity. We are, you know, going through college for my undergrad and, you know, going, I was an education major and, you know, it was just rammed down our throats. Now I was in my thirties, you know, going through college, so not the typical experience you know i had a little bit more years of wisdom behind uh, behind me non-traditional student is what that's called yes 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 yes. so you know they're constantly trying to ram down these people's throat that are attending college that oh diversity diversity is our strength well no diversity is not a strength No. no you know that's dividing you right diversity dividing yes you so that you're not unified and right. powerful in one force. Exactly. You know, I can respect someone's culture. I can respect someone's sure. heritage. I can, you know, that all that stuff's fine. But at the end of the day, like I said, the widest net is the is the in respect for the individual. You know, like you are created in the image of God, and therefore are owed a certain level of respect because of that fact. And on top of that, you are endowed by God with those natural rights uh, that I have a duty and obligation to respect. When we think about duty and obligation, what role does the state play in this duty and obligation to, to not allow our freedoms to be infringed upon? So... When you say, first of all, let's talk about rights because now we're getting into it, you know, real deep here. What's the definition of rights? If you ask the, you know, just man on the street, 99.9% of Americans will look at you like, huh? (laughs) Right? Which is crazy because, you know, I'm a teacher. If I'm, if I'm doing a unit on, let's say the civil war, Right. I'm going to go over to my whiteboard and I'm going to start writing words on the on on the wall. Right. Like abolition, you know, the uh, political idea that we should get rid of slavery in the law, period. Right. I'm going to start defining these words. Right. We grow up, we go to class, we go to government class, we go to civics class, whatever it is that you want to call it. We learn about the Declaration of Independence. We learn about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we, we 
we're told that, you know, it's really important that you understand what your rights are, that you protect your rights, that you stand up for your rights. You know, you see people screaming at the top of their lungs, walking down the street with picket signs saying, you know, we demand our rights or whatever. You know, ask these people, give me a definition of rights. Don't give me an example like freedom of speech or freedom of religion or whatever. No, no. Define it for me. Most people can't. And that should terrify you. Because why aren't your teachers teaching you the definition of a word when they do that for every other class that they teach, whether it's science or math or mm -hmm. English or even history, right? Like every other class, when you get a new word, in order to have a conversation about it in class, right, you have to have a definition for it. So the definition of rights, you're in your civics class. I'm that 10th grader. Mm -hmm. You write on the board, the def what, what are your rights? And the answer is going to be... That which is morally correct and just. Mm. It comes from a Greek word, dikaiomata. So, let's That's say that definition. again. That the which definition is, of rights are... That which is morally correct and just. That is so easily missed. Mm -hmm. It's literally, it's right, the opposite of wrong. The, so you have a right to life. Light is opposite of darkness. Right. Darkness is the absence of light. Right. And to violate someone's rights would be to administer to them something that is morally unjust and incorrect. So let's use a wild example. You have a right to life. I pull out a 45 right now on camera and just blast you and murder you. Nobody in the audience that's watching this would be like, there he goes again. That crazy Scott. He's just mm -hmm. always killing people. Everyone would say he's not allowed to do that. That's morally reprehensible. He just murdered that man. Well, no, no, wait, though. No, let me, let me stop you there, <laughs> yeah. Scott. Um, because that's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening. And I'll give you an example of that. You have protests all over the world right now promoting and supporting Hamas mm -hmm. for doing that very thing in Israel on October 7th. Right. I know this is a controversial subject, but, but what you just described is people would say, Scott, you can't kill Skip. Mm -hmm. But yet Hamas, you can kill people in Israel. I think that that line of thinking, well, first of all, it's not really much. I don't think these people are thinking this through, number one. Um, number two, I think that if you were to grab a hold of them and just have a simple conversation, their entire argument would fall apart very quickly. Because the reality is we do know what is right, what is wrong. That's why we have a conscience. That's well, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you did, if you talked to that mm -hmm. individual person and said, right. um, I need you to bring your sibling up here so I can kill them, mm -hmm. they're going to be like, no. Right. Well, wait, 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 time out. But it's okay for this to happen here. Right. And it, and I think it's because they're disconnected. Mm -hmm. It does. It's not their sphere of influence. It's not impacting that sphere. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I can say what I want to. And, and I don't want to go down that rabbit trail too much because I think we could stay on it all day. Sure. But I want to go back to what you said earlier about the education system. 
And I go back to, I believe that the education system is not teaching our kids to think for themselves. No, it's not. They're, they're the fall in line, do what I tell you to do, mm-hmm. memorize what I tell you, and not study the facts for themselves. Well, that's because that's the system that, that's why the system was built for that purpose, to achieve mm. that purpose, right? So, you know, you had John D. Rockefeller in the 1890s coming up with this idea that we're just going to throw a whole bunch of money in making this universal school system and we're going to out put it nationwide in all 50 states, <clears throat> well, 48 at the time. Um, <laughs> well, actually, not even. Arizona wasn't a state yet. My bad. Anyway. <laughs> it's okay. Let's go back to 1870. Okay. Little community. Erie, Pennsylvania. Sure. One room school. Yep. One teacher. Mm-hmm. All grades in one building. Brilliant. Love it. Not unified education, but nope. more of a we're going to teach you and not STEM. That wasn't a, a term then, but we're going to teach you. It was classical math. education. Classical education, mm-hmm. math, reading, um, I guess science. Sure. Just the basics. Mm hmm. But you had people that were brilliant that could think for themselves. Yep. That would read and study and grow. A church was a, a huge impact in the community. It's where most people learned how to read. Mm. Oh, really? Yep. Sunday okay. school. Sunday yeah. school. If you couldn't, if you didn't have a, a uh, you know, this was way more common in the South. Um, <clears throat> if you didn't have a public school system in place. Um, yeah, if you want to learn how to read, you went to Sunday school and mm. that's where you learned how to read. So I think about, um, and I'm, I'm on a rabbit trail for just a second. No, you're fine. Uh, Cause I love architecture. I love old buildings. And I think about traveling to New York and DC and, you know, places in Philly or whatever. And you've got these old churches yeah, right in the cornerstone of where that community was. Hmm. And it was almost as if the courthouse and the church were the best buildings. Yep. Okay. And and it makes sense that, you know, that was the gathering place. Sure. That's where every family had their wedding. Um, that's where they gathered on every week. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was, you know, they wore their Sunday best. You know, it was just a different cultural aspect of, yes, we're going to go. It wasn't a question. We're going to go. Mm-hmm. And now it kind of makes sense that, you know, you go to Sunday school and they teach you to read. Right. And and so many people memorize the King James Version of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. Then versus the way it is. Now we have a, a plethora of versions out there. Sure. It's fascinating that you say that. So I got off my bird walk, so we'll go back. <laughs> but but it's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking and I'm like, okay, I've been, I've been to New York. I've been to D.C. I've been to these places. Yeah. And you see these huge, beautiful chapels mm-hmm. where you know, I mean, beautiful doors. And I used to go in a lot of old churches when I traveled just so I could see the stained glass and the beautiful, you know, things like that. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Israel a couple of times and seen these ancient, ancient cathedrals. Mm-hmm. And then I come back here and I'm like, wow, it's it's amazing that that was the gathering place that people went on a weekly basis. Yeah. And just all of the architecture and the beauty of those, those places. But then you say, oh, well, that's where they learned to, to read. Right. And maybe even write. Sure. Maybe even write. 
Yeah, if I mean, if you couldn't afford a private tutor, especially down here in the South, like that's where you went to learn mm. how to read and write. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and and you, so now fast forward, Rockefeller, eighteen. Well, actually, I want to take us back ten okay. years before okay. eighteen seventy. Okay. You're in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, this is an interesting fact. The United States Civil War is the most well-documented historical event in all of human history. You know why? No, I don't know. Because 98% of the Union soldiers were literate, and 89% of the Southern Confederate soldiers were literate. Hmm. Now, put that fact in the back of your head. We're going to put that on the back burner okay. here, and we'll come back to that in a second. 90 plus, 80 plus, a right. lot of literacy, <clears throat> knew right. how to write, knew how to read, yep. letters home yep. to mama and girlfriend. Uh-huh. Okay, got it. Okay, so Rockefeller comes along. Uh, he's already made a, just buckets of money off of the oil industry mm-hmm. in the 1890s, and he decides he's going to spend that money and invest it in good quality workers. So he's going to unveil this education plan that is going to be taken, and he wants it to be dispersed throughout all the states. Um, and if he can get this system in place where... You make it mandatory. This is where it starts to become mandatory that kids have to go to school uh, under the Rockefeller plan. Um, if you can get all of these kids to sit down and do this program that he's unveiling, then he's going to basically be able to uh, mold these good factory workers that are going to be coming out of this system. And it really got out of control. The, la- the nail in the coffin was... Uh, done by a guy named John Dewey. Remember the Dewey Decimal System? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. John Dewey, boo hiss, I like to say. <laughs> um, he, he, he's the guy that totally ruined education in America because he was the expert. And um, he took Rockefeller's plan and he, he codified it and made it uh, into the modern public education system that we all know and love today. Is um, that what we call it? That's it, yeah. I'll just check it. So, yeah, we would be better served, everyone in the country would be better served if we scrapped this system that we all know doesn't work. Um, I mean, we're designed, it was designed, okay, so it was designed by guys from the 19th century to make good factory workers. Are we factory workers now? Do we produce things? Uh, Manufacture things? Not as much as we should. No. So, our... If our entire education system is predicated on the idea that we're going to try to churn out good factory workers, and then the rest of the economy has moved on from that, uh, it, you know, even if you are just a pragmatist, this isn't working, guys. Uh, so I think I'm in favor of scrapping it, and I'm in favor of going back to the classical education system that we had prior to the 1890s, in which... Like I said, 98% of the Union soldiers were illiterate under this system. Do you know, look at our modern system. Do which, we have a literacy rate of 98%? Which which we go back to the original question we talked about earlier was what role do the states play in this scenario? And right. and and you mentioned and you you got off on the on the work of the education system and I think we got to go back to the states are in control of the states. Yeah, well, they absolutely should be, first of all. Um, but I wouldn't even say that this necessarily needs to be a state issue. 
It can be a local issue. It would be much better if you had absolute local control here. That's how schools started in America. We're talking in the 1630s. So if you have a school <clears throat> that is excelling in academics, mm -hmm. then guess what? Kids and parents are going to want their kids to go there. Right, absolutely. And the parents need to be the ones that are in charge. That's how this school system got started. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the public system school system in America started with the, the Puritans in, in New England. They got together and they would, you know, the parents of a village would hire a teacher. Uh, they would interview him themselves and say, okay, we trust you with our kids. That's where you get the one room schoolhouse that you were talking about. So let's, <clears throat> let's take that one step further. Sure. <clears throat> if the education system, the, what I would call the business of education, because that's in theory what it is. Sure. It's a government agency, um, government, for the most part, government funded. Our taxpayer dollars go to it. But, but the education system is not, from an expository view, granular level, teaching on the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the, what the Founding Fathers, the Bill of Rights, they're not teaching at a granular level, what the purpose and formation of those documents were. How for. could they? Well, they probably weren't. Nobody taught them. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we go back to changing right. the education system. That's kind of where we got to go. How do we get that education piece instituted where the students understand that piece? Absolutely. So it's about, I, I think... We're in trouble, if I'm going to be frank. We're, you know, there's a bunch of things that we need to do. Like uh, when we first started talking, you know, I think it's absolutely essential that we win back the culture uh, that we were, you know, that I was talking about. And that, that includes education. Like I said, K through 12 education, mm -hmm. conservatives have seeded. Uh, the academy and the universities we've seeded, right? So that's one aspect, one major aspect that we need to to focus on is we need to take education back and, and win that. And then there's also all the cultural stuff as well, um, which I'm not neglecting. I just, you know, let's focus on this real quick. How are we funding education now? And how should we fund education in the future? That's literally, you know, I think where it comes down to the way that we f fund education right now is if you send your kid to the government school or public school, like, um, they sit their butt down in that chair, the school gets a paycheck because of it, all right? It's based upon this average daily attendance, right? That's, that's why, correct. That's why they want them there. Right, that's why they get now, really you, upset when your you kids You go sit. after lunch, but right. you got to be here in the morning. Right. Yep. Yeah, they don't care what you do after lunch mm -hmm. uh, as long as they made their average daily attendance, which, you know, again, so the, all they care about is not educating the kid. They care about the money, right? And, and we want to make sure that we preface it with this. There are some fantastic teachers out there. Sure. There are some fantastic administrators. Sure. Some of the most influential people who shaped my world were educators. Um, and I can, I can go on and on. One, I'll just mention uh, Russell Saypal. He was a principal of mine when I was in school. If it were not for him, I believe 100% I would not be anywhere near where I am, but he saw something in me mm -hmm. 
and force me to make a change. So let's go back to the whole theme, the dirt road, right? Right. He knew my whole family. His first year out of college, he was teaching my older siblings. So he knew my whole family. Mm-hmm. I'm the youngest. I come along, and he sees me going the same path. But he saw enough in me that he wanted me to go a different way. And so I did. Now, granted, I would tell you I went the different way, but the but the dirt road had a lot of deep potholes in it. <laughs> But I did go a different way, which also gave me a glimpse mm-hmm. for going to a new school. It gave me a glimpse of seeing what higher education could do. Right. Because I'm seeing all of my peers, not my friends, because I say friends loosely, but all of my peers, my classmates are are planning to go to college. I'm like, that's, that's not something we really talked about. Mm-hmm. And so it gave me the incentive to go on and pursue a college education. Now, retroactive, I've gone back many times and given Mr. St. Paul a hug and told him how much I appreciate him. Yeah. So there are teachers out there, and there's there's multiple. I have multiple teachers I could talk about like that, that invested in my success. Sure. That saw potential in me I could not see in myself. Right. And so, so we don't want to blanket... No, I'm not going to try to call out mm-hmm. any. I'm talking about just sort of the nebulous the, system. The that system has been, in and of itself. Right, right. That that Rockefeller and Dewey have basically thrust upon us. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mm-hmm. know, uh, not talking about any person's intentions or anything like that. Uh, that's stuck in the system. I mean, my God, I've been in this. You know, I've been a public school yeah, teacher. That's right. You know? That's right. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not trying to dump on anybody. I'm just looking at this system objectively and saying, this is not working, folks. Um, And so how do you fix it? Well, you know, I I want to applaud here in Texas, Senator uh, Brandon Crichton, State Senator Brandon Crichton, uh, who's the uh, chair of the Education Committee in the Texas Senate, has come out with a bill uh, this last legislative session and all the special sessions as well. Uh, for school choice, and I think that's a great idea. I love it. I, the idea is that we're going to create education savings accounts for kids in Texas, and then they get, I think it was $8,000 uh, in that education savings account, and they can use that towards tuition for uh, private school to buy books. Is that 8000 a year? Yes. Okay. The problem with Senator Crichton's bill, uh, with all respect, uh, is it only uh, would affect if it got passed, which it's not getting passed because the house keeps killing it. Um, it only affects 62,000 students across the state of Texas. And we have like 6 million students in the state of Texas. So like, while it's a, it's a step in the right direction and is good and I support it. It's not good enough. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's the solution. So if I hear you right, so let's let's I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of come back mm-hmm. and then pull back to it. You know, we're really talking about the Constitution, talking about what the framers wanted, mm-hmm. um, but it really boils down to it comes full circle to the education department because if the educators are not educating on the true meaning of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, mm-hmm. and really what we're supposed to do as a country right. moving forward then it's very difficult. Basically, you're creating a, a generational 
level of people that don't understand the purpose and meaning of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. We need to drastically reduce the size of the federal government. Oh, um, that's a you know, that's a whole other sure. show that yeah. will take multiple series. But that you know, you said th- we have an education department that needs to be axed, in my opinion. Um, well, let's, you know, Washington let's, had four cabinet members. Now we have sixteen. Yeah, let's, let's think <laughs> from a second though, and you and that's one aspect of sure. everything that we're struggling with as a nation. But if you were to just recap. What are some things out of history, turning points, we'll call it? What are some things out of history, two or three, not ten, but two or three turning points in history that our citizens should know about that may directly impact how they view the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence today? Sure. So when we say founding fathers, that is... Again, a really broad topic. It is. Are we talking about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington? Are we talking about people like William Penn, you know, and uh, you know William Brewster uh, and the and the Pilgrims, you know, of Plymouth? I I like to to focus on the idea that we have what I would refer to as planting fathers. So that would be Brewster. William Penn, the the first colonists, you know, mm-hmm. John Smith. Uh, and then we have the founding fathers. And so that's like, you know, the founding generation in, in the Declaration of Independence. Um, well, it's no different in business. You have people who can start a business. You have people who can grow a business and run a business. And mm-hmm. those sometimes are not the same. Sure. Yeah. So understanding the difference between those two. And then on top of that, I would, I would point out, Everybody towards the Great Awakenings. There's two. There's the first Great Awakening that happened in the 1730s, and then you had the second Great Awakening, and it happened in a hundred years later in the 1830s. Since when did that started? So let's go back to the first Great Awakening. So what's happening in the colonies in the 1730s? You know, you have your 13 colonies right along the Atlantic coast, uh, pushed up against the Appalachian Mountains. Um, you have these people that are running around these itinerant um, preachers that are spreading the gospel and um, unifying the American colonists with this new religion, this new religious movement, this evangelical religious movement uh, that simply they referred to uh, in the 1730s as the new light. Um, this is all happening at the same time that the Enlightenment, which is a secular intellectual movement that is going on, and it is only in America this unique thing happens where you have this Enlightenment, humanistic, academic, intellectual movement that's happening is married with this evangelical Christian movement that's happening at the same time. And the marriage of those two is unique to America. You don't see that happening in England. You don't see that happening in France and mm. Germany and you know the other places the Enlightenment were happening. Um, and I think that heavily influences the way that the next generation then deals with uh, the political turmoil of their time period, which is the founding generation. What's interesting is you always see 
with the Great Awakenings, this religious revival movement, you always see that what happens in generation after that occurs is a new birth of freedom. So in the first Great Awakening, you had then the next generation, the founding generation, you have the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, etc. When you go to the second Great Awakening, the 1830s, the new birth of freedom that happens happens in the aftermath of the Civil War, which is we're going to abolish slavery. We're going to make uh, the free men now citizens under the 14th Amendment, and we're going to give those free men who are now citizens under the 14th Amendment the right to vote as long as they're male uh, with the 15th Amendment. Um, so you haven't gotten this new birth of freedom, and that's a quote, of course, from the Gettysburg Address. But it's you always have this movement that occurs. It has to be an intellectual and spiritual and moral movement that occurs before you get anywhere uh, regarding um, sort of progress towards cl- reclaiming your natural rights. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. If we were looking at this as a nation, mm-hmm. and we tend to keep going down this path where we are ignoring or allowing our freedoms to be infringed upon. What do you see happening to the next generation? We're going to get that next generation in a jam to where either they're going to have to endure the tyranny that we allowed to happen, or they're going to have to fight to get rid of it. It's that simple. Hmm. Scott, I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Uh, enjoyed this more than you know. Our next seg- segment is going to be specific around freedoms. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. Sure. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate you being here. Appreciate your service to our country. My pleasure. Looking forward to having that episode on and digging deep and unpacking some of that stuff while you were at the NSA. So thank you so much for tuning in today. Look forward to you on the next show.